right, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, if there's anybody back in that overflow room wondering, there are a couple of spots. There's a front row here right in the center, the splash zone, if you want to risk that and be brave this morning. Um, it's good to have a, a full room on Baptism Sunday. That's exciting. Um, uh, we are, just so you know, by way of logistics, after this service is over, we're gonna give about 10 minutes for people to change into swim trunks and uh, get ready for the baptisms themselves. And uh, that's gonna take place. Uh, the baptisms on the front lawn here, you probably passed the giant baptismal and maybe figured that out for yourself. Um, and so uh, after the service, give about 10 minutes, you can hang out in here and connect or go ahead and go out to the lawn and connect. That way you're, you're ready. I hope that, um, I hope many will stick around for those baptisms after this service is over, um, just as a, a, a celebration and community together. And then on the other side of the baptisms, uh, that'll bring us right up to about noon. Uh, the other side of the baptisms, we're gonna have a meet cross point lunch. Uh, that will take place right on the other side of the back wall of this auditorium to the right of the soundboard there. If you turn around and look back, you walk through a little entrance there and uh, there's a room on the other side of that wall and we're gonna be providing free lunch for anybody who's new or relatively new and hasn't come to the newcomer lunch uh, and would like to be able to ask their questions about our church, um, learn a little bit more about this church, mission, vision, values, direction, those kind of things. We'd love to be able to engage some of those questions and just get to know you over uh, what I hope to be good, free food. Um, and so uh, this morning, uh, before we get to all that, uh, we're gonna dive into the scriptures one more time. Uh, not one more time, as in this is the end of the Bible for us as a church. One more time in this sermon series. Uh, we're in the, uh, the end of a sermon series entitled Seven Deadly Follies right now. We've been working through uh, a study essentially of the seven deadly sins as evidenced in the book of Proverbs. We've been doing that through the months of June and July. Uh, we're gonna ramp back up in September, uh, back into the book of Luke. We've been working our way through Luke since Advent of last year. We hit the pause button over the summer months because uh, getting traction in the summer around these parts is kind of difficult. And uh, since we're in a, a narrative of scripture, we wanna give space for people to be able to track with where we've come from in the story of Luke and where we're going and how all those dots connect. And so for now, it's a topical sermon series on the seven deadly sins as evidenced in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is essentially designed to uh, compel us to choose wisdom over folly. The first nine chapters of the book, before you ever even get into the, the micro Proverbs themselves, uh, those first nine chapters made up of poetic attempts to compel us to that end, to choose wisdom. Uh, chapter nine, which we looked at uh, in week one of this series, presenting us with the imagery of two houses the house of Lady Wisdom and the house of Lady Folly, both calling out to us, both extending an invitation to come and dine at their tables. The one inviting us to sit down, to raise a glass and to toast our own death, Lady Folly, the other offering us a seat at the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God, Lady Wisdom. So that on the one hand, this series has been about uh, exposing the ugliness of the vices for what they are. Yes, we wanna do that, pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, seven of Lady Folly's most alluring personas, reminding us of just how desperate for the cross of Jesus Christ we are and the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. And with that forgiveness, and we've been getting after this from week one of this series too, the spirit indwelling power to fight for true and lasting joy. 
This series is, is not simply about refusing to raise a glass and toast our own death, but about embracing a seat at the better table. As I've said from week one of this series, Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that we might do everything we can to pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. Again, it's why the subtitle of this sermon series is The Fight for Happiness in the Killing of Sin. This morning, uh, we're gonna move into the final and seventh of Lady Folly's alluring personas, the temptress who goes by the name of lust. And so I invite you to open your Bible uh, to Proverbs chapter 23, uh, verses 26 through 28. Uh, That's the first part of Proverbs that we'll look at. We'll be dancing around other parts of scripture as well and other parts of even the book of Proverbs itself, but we'll start there as it pertains to the book of Proverbs this morning, diving into the scriptures. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the timeliness of the way we didn't intend to orchestrate it this way, but that we would be closing out a series on the seven deadly sins which would show us over the course of of the last couple of months over and over again just how desperate we are for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that as a capstone to this series, we would then step out onto the front lawn and celebrate three baptisms uh, symbolizing the, the wonder and the hope of your redemptive work, Jesus. Thank you for that. I pray that we would all walk away full this morning, filled with joy, satisfied in you, ready to leave this building and this lawn and go sit around tables, be it our dining rooms or in restaurants scattered throughout this community and just talk about the the wonder of who you are and what you've done for us, Jesus. This is a great Lord's Day. I pray that as we open the scriptures that Spirit of God, you would move in our minds and our hearts and our lives that we would walk away transformed as a result of our time in your word. Holy Spirit, you must do that work. I can't do that work. So I trust you to do so. And I ask you to do it in my own life as well, that you would give me a feeling sense of the things I preach in these moments to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you probably noticed this throughout the course of this series. Uh, There has not been a single week where there has been a full-on comprehensive unpacking of any one of these vices. So so we haven't gotten into a full systematic or biblical theology of pride, nor have we done so with greed or envy or any of the others. Same is true this morning. We're not going to, to get into the deepest of dives into the topic of lust as seen from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. We're not gonna get into a full-on systematic theology of this topic Uh, We will get into a bit of a biblical theology as it pertains to creation, fall, redemption, but I trust that we will walk away with some questions. We will walk away perhaps wishing there were more uh, practical, um, logistical sort of outworkings of of what it means to to fight the good fight of faith. Uh, We'll save that for another day, for another sermon Uh, At the same time, I will say I would love to to connect and talk about any of the things we've been talking about for the last two months um, and and to to dive into that more intentionally in a way that's more nuanced and meets you where you are. So there's always room for those kind of conversations. As a disclaimer to parents, 
I mentioned this in the email yesterday. I'm gonna do everything I can to communicate with honesty and biblical integrity without getting unnecessarily explicit. Uh, I think that's doable, and that's what I'm aiming at. Uh, Before we get to the book of Proverbs, I I think I've done this about half of the series or more. Open up to the book of Proverbs, church, and then gone to another passage of scripture to start with. Um, We have to do that because it, it seems that we can't go a week without tracing human history all the way back to the garden, the garden of Eden, as physical intimacy finds its way into the very story of creation. Before you ever even leave the first chapter of the Bible, similar to last week, that the Bible teaches that that such intimacy is a gift from God, that Adam and Eve didn't come up with the idea, they didn't stumble their way into it. Rather, we're told, Genesis chapter one, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Or how about Genesis two, verses 22 through 24? And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Before you ever even get to the fall of man in Genesis three, good thing, part of God's creation and design 1 Corinthians 7, Paul declares that intimacy between a husband and a wife is commanded as an expression of mutual self-giving covenant love, both procreational and recreational. However, that which God establishes as a gift to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage, we now find ways in the wake of the fall to, to both demonize and deify. On the one hand, demonized, viewed by some as dirty, vile, disgusting, and wicked, a topic not to be discussed. The church should be embarrassed by it. Maybe you've experienced that along the way. Treated as such by even some of the greatest of the early church fathers, including Tertullian, Ambrose, and Augustine. On the other hand, deified, a good thing treated as a God thing, an idol in so many various ways as we distort God's good gift and design in a way that goes much deeper than action or emotion. Similarly to when we talked about anger or wrath a couple weeks ago, that lust is a heart issue, a desire for satisfaction issue. Proverbs 23, where I had you open up to, verses 26 through 28, the author says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. That lust personified by a prostitute or adulteress preys on her victims like a, a robber lying in wait, like a fisherman dangling the lure in hopes that those to whom she calls won't see the hook. And according to Proverbs 23, if I could use that fishing imagery, the live well into which she sends her victims is inescapable. A deep pit, verse 27, a narrow well. That that language of a narrow well being a well with a a small opening up top, which gets broader the deeper the, the well gets. It's a bottle shape. 
It's like the, the bottled dungeon beneath the castle in St. Andrews, Scotland, where some of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation were actually imprisoned. It's unscalable. How do you, how do you climb that? It's inescapable in its upward slope. It's what lust does. And, and the victims, not simply being those who behave a certain way again, but, but those whose hearts are inclined a certain way. My son, give me your heart, verse 26. And let your eyes observe my ways. The direction of our gaze is an outworking of our hearts. As we've seen in previous weeks of this series, Jesus himself, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus says, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's heavy language, right? We've seen this every week of this series. In the words of one scholar, the lust that leads to adultery will also lead a person to hell. The deep pit described in Proverbs the place of eternal death, that most of us will probably make it through the day without committing the physical act of, of adultery, though the stats are real. But what about the inside of the cup, Jesus says? What Jesus refers to as heart adultery. Every thought, word, and deed that, that doesn't align with God's good design for sex and covenant fidelity, it, it puts us into the category of an adulterer. King David, he, he was an adulterer long before uh, he got along with Bathsheba. That adulterous relationship, at least as we're told in scripture on David's part, began with a lustful rooftop gaze. Out of the overflow of the heart, the eye gazes intently, whether the harem is real or digital. And it condemns us apart from Christ. Jesus himself says as much. He goes so far as to say that heaven and hell are at stake using incredibly severe language to make the point. I mean, what is he, what is he saying here? Is he really calling uh, those with an earshot to a life of self-mutilation, some sort of queen of hearts, off with your hand, out with your eye? What about the heart? What about the inside of the cup? Cutting off your hand will prevent you from murder but will it address the, the deeply rooted anger within your heart? In Mark 7, the, the Pharisees, they're causing a ruckus as they've been known to do from time to time in the gospel accounts because some of Jesus' disciples, they're eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus responds, Mark 7, verse 20. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, there it is, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things Jesus says come from within and they defile a person. Jesus isn't really advocating for self-mutilation in the Sermon on the Mount. He's, for one, making a point of how serious the issue is. Again, in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But, but it seems to me that, that Jesus is doing something else with, with his language of hand severing and eye gouging, namely revealing the hopelessness and foolishness of solely dealing with the outside of the cup. 
right? The, the scribes and Pharisees, they're ferociously committed to cleaning the outside of the cup, but will they go this far? If you're serious about skin deep morality, if you really wanna to attempt to make the law manageable, if you really wanna insulate yourself from the law's hard piercing demands, chop off your hand, gouge out your eye, and see in the wake of your self-mutilation that it was the inside of the cup all along. Jesus is getting after deep root issues in us that, that destroy our relationships with God and with other people, digging beneath the, the surface level manifestations of the law to its heart level intent. We talked about that in our Sermon on the Mount series from start to finish exposing our deep poverty of spirit, the, the pit of eternal condemnation that awaits us apart from Jesus. Proverbs says it elsewhere, very similarly, chapter 22, verse 14, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. And, and, and here's one of the great dangers. We've seen this before in this series with uh, the vice of pride, that there's something in our nature that wants to justify. With pride, it's seeing ourselves as right in our own eyes. Notice how Proverbs 30 verse 20 says it with respect to lust. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Again, it's not simply about behavior, but about the human heart, even when and especially when things seem harmless. I have done no wrong. That's the human disposition, self-justification, defending, blame-shifting. can start off as subtle as, she laughs at my jokes more than my wife, or he notices me and listens to me more than my husband, maybe fantasizing about old relationships of the past, maybe new ones in the present, and on and on we could go. And the destination is the same. It's the deep pit of Proverbs. In the sobering words of one scholar in a commentary I read this week, he asked, do you love lust enough to go to hell for it? Because that's Satan's relentless ambition. Dressed as Lady Folly the temptress to take as many people as he possibly can down the path of lust into the pit of hell. That's why Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 6, 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, there it is, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, there it is again, nor men who practice homosexuality, there it is again, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As has been the case in every week of this series, we get to that point where, where the church cries out, maybe not audibly, but give me the gospel, brother. This is where we come to the point of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who cry out like the publican in Jesus's parable, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And yet, we have hope because of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. I love, I love, love, love that the very next words that Paul offers the church in Corinth 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Right? Arguably, m- most sermons on topics like these fan guilt and shame into flame with nothing more than an absent of the gospel called to do better and be better. Just fix the outside of the cup. I'll never forget, uh, I was engaging in a, a conference when I was, uh, I believe it was when I was going through my church planting residency. And at the time, he wasn't the president of our network yet. Matt Chandler, pastor out in Dallas, he is now the president of our, our church planting network. Uh, but at the time, he was telling uh, he was telling a story at a conference uh, about the dangers of behavior modification in the American South uh, as it pertains to the church and, and her aims and ambitions. Uh, the, the dangers of being hyper-churched and under-gospeled would be another way to say it. And, uh, and he brought up this story of when he was in college, his freshman year, he met a, uh, a woman, 26 years old, single mom, had, had a pretty promiscuous life along the way. And, and he and some friends kind of took her in and started babysitting her, uh, her kid. And eventually, a, a buddy of his played in a, a Christian band, and, and they were doing a gig, so to speak, at, at a local church in the area. And so, uh, as he tells it, you know, he invited her to come check out a band. He said it was excellent. It was shady. I, I got her in there. You know, she was going to hear the gospel, I thought. And... Uh, he said, the, the pastor got up and he said, all right, uh, the topic we're gonna talk about tonight is sex. And, and he went, uh-oh, um, as he sat by this 26-year-old woman with a promiscuous path, uh, past. And the pastor began his, his sermon uh, with a rose in hand. And he, and he said, uh, I'm gonna preach. And, and as I do, I'm gonna hand this rose off to the front row here. And I want you to smell it, you know, touch it. And then I want you to pass it around, let it make its way around the auditorium. Uh, and, and so he began to, to preach uh, what uh, Matt Chandler describes at best as fear-mongering. And toward the end of, of that particular sermon, that pastor said, now, now where's my rose? And he asked for the rose back and, and, and it was completely jacked up, petals falling off. And, and his big crescendo, the way he ends this sermon is, who would want this? And, and my brother Matt said it was all I could do not to stand up out of my seat and scream at the top of my lungs, Jesus wants the rose. It's the point of the gospel. I, I don't know what you bring into this place this morning, and, and particularly as we've sat with now eight heavy weeks, seven of those diving into some of the, the deepest, most dangerous vices known to man, But can I just say to you that Jesus wants to take for his bride those who have given themselves away. Come now, Isaiah 118, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's part of what we're gonna celebrate and what baptism symbolizes out on that lawn just minutes from now that Jesus came to purchase us for his own while we were yet sinners. He knew that we had nothing to bring to the table but jacked up petals. He knew that he was gonna have to live our life and die our death. He knew that our sins were gonna be put upon him, that he might make a bunch of adulterers his own, myself included. 
The church is meant to cry out this morning, what grace, what a savior. Let me just say this, if you don't know grace, you can. If you don't know the love of Jesus, you can. Maybe today's the day that you fall in love with a king who would die for his adulterous people. And if you wanna talk more about that, I would love to connect with you after this service. Charles Wesley once wrote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. If you're not a Christian, only in Christ can we be raised from the deep pit of death, the unscalable, narrow well. You can't get out on your own. And so I implore you to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to enter the house of, of wisdom and live, to use that Proverbs language. And if you are a Christian, again, Christ not only died to secure our forgiveness, but our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that we might know deeper, true, lasting happiness a seat at the better table. Proverbs 29.3 says, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. The opposite of the promiscuous life, the opposite of lust is the love of wisdom and it makes our father glad. A father whose kingdom is not simply about uprooting lustful intent, though that's part of it, but it's, it's about the better kingdom, the kingdom of God glorifying covenant fidelity, a kingdom of image-bearing honor. John Piper once wrote, this is God's demand and this is God's gift. It is all of grace. That is why the decisive fight against lust is the fight of faith the fight to daily welcome and treasure Christ so fully that temptation to sin loses its power over us. The battle against lust is the battle against unbelief. The fight of faith is the battle to be satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Lust loses its power to the extent we believe in Christ like this. It's about beholding. Psalm 107 verse nine for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. That's the house of Lady Wisdom. That quote, that passage of scripture, if, if I could contrast it with the house of Lady Folly, the very different picture which the vice of lust offers us, Rebecca de Young in her book, Glittering Vices, she's a professor of philosophy at Calvin University. She says, Fulfilling pleasure without full human intimacy is lust's favorite false promise. Like the other vices, lust gives us an imitation of happiness, a substitute for the real thing. It's an equal packet. It's the hollow, empty substitute Jeremiah 2 speaks of, of broken cisterns that can hold no water trading those for the fountains of living water from which the Lord invites us to drink. As we trust that, that he truly can satisfy us in a way that nothing else can. And that's a fight that we fight for the rest of our lives to more deeply find ourselves satisfied in Jesus Christ. That's why it's called progressive sanctification as opposed to instantaneous sanctification. Coming back to a quote from last week, 
I just think it's appropriate because gluttony and lust, they, they both have to do with our insatiable appetites. Oftentimes they have the very same triggers. So I'll bring you back to a Samuel Rutherford quote from last week. He says, there's enough in our Lord's kitchen to satisfy all his children and enough wine in his cellar to quench all their thirst. Hunger on, for there's food in hunger for Christ. Never go from him without bothering him with a dish full of hungry desires until he feeds you. That again, the, the Christian life is about bringing hungry souls to the table of the, the king, trusting that it's out of that place of deepest satisfaction in Jesus that true victory over sin is found. And unless we think that we're alone in the battle, that God has just, uh, in, a, in a deistic sort of way, just left us on our own, Charles Spurgeon once wrote, though you have struggled in vain against your evil habits, though you have wrestled with them sternly and resolved and resolved only to be defeated by your giant sins and your terrible passions, there is one who can conquer all your sins for you. There is one who is stronger than Hercules, who can strangle the persistent evil of your lust, kill the lion of your passions, and cleanse the filthy stable of your evil nature by, I love this, by turning the great rivers of blood and water in his atoning sacrifice right through your soul. He, he can make and keep you pure within. And that's just borrowed from scripture. The apostle Paul says it first, uh, excuse me, Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We could have gone to Romans 8 there as well. This God who conforms us to the image of his son, he's committed to that. It's going to happen, Christian. Don't lose heart. Fight for purity, covenant fidelity by the power that, that God supplies, knowing that you're in a fight for true and lasting happiness. Here's the beautiful promise for those who have been born again and are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit on a mission to kill sin. Again, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a promise. Again, to quote Piper, it says, seeing God is the great goal of being pure. Or as 1 John 3, 2 says, beloved, we are God's children now, and, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The, the, the great blessing and hope of the gospel is that we shall someday see God. And when we do, we're told that we shall be like him. <laughs> Anybody who understands the struggle with sin to be real should shout a hearty hallelujah. When we see him as he is, all impurity will be wiped away forever. On the one hand, the great goal of being pure is the future hope of seeing God, a God at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And don't ask me to unpack uh, that, that uh, well, all that that means. I don't think I could. I don't think I could scratch the surface of what it means that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. But we do have a future hope, future satisfaction, a future joy, a future basking in the presence of God that's worth fighting for holiness now. 
But lest we think that our hope is only future, God invites us to see him now in the present as we functionally embrace our blood-bought seed at the better table. Blessed are the, the pure in heart for they shall see God future and blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God present. In the beauty of a sunset, in the laughter of a child, in the evidence of his providences in our, uh, providence in our lives, in the kindness of his provision, right? things that we don't readily see when sin clouds our vision. The more pure in heart, the more undivided and undefiled, the more we see God in all these ways now. Again, this series is not just about a fight for morality, but a fight for true joy, true today joy. Seated at the better table. If I could come back, I began this series framing it with this quote. I think it's appropriate to put a bookend on it uh, on the back end here. Marshall Siegel, his book, the book Killjoys, the commentary on the seven deadly sins. Many of you have seen this quote several times now. Christianity, he says, is not merely or even mainly about correcting your bad habits, but about satisfying and fulfilling you in the deepest way possible and therefore making God look as great as he is. Our hearts were designed to enjoy a full and forever happiness, not the pitiful temporary pleasures for which we're too prone to settle. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust are all woefully inadequate substitutes for the wonder, beauty, and affection of God. As first hopes or dreams or loves, they are killjoys by comparison to Christ. They will rob you, not ravish you. They will numb you, not heal you. They will slaughter you, not save you. He goes on, the map inscribed on our sinful soul will not lead any of us to truth, glory, or happiness. It will lead us in circles of almost and good enough until it sits by our hospice bed, holding our confused, disappointed, and hopeless hand as we drift off into hell. You have to wake up, scrap the old map, and grab the compass pointing true north, trusting that the God who formed our hearts knows how to fill them. We have to fight for joy in the right places. If I could say it a different way, that Jeremiah 2 sort of way, it's not only about abandoning broken cisterns filled with brackish water, but about drinking from the fount that overflows with living water. I'll close the, the last week of this series the same way I, I closed the first. On the one hand, you can rest. You can rest in the good news that Jesus died for the the unrehabilitated you, securing forgiveness for the imperfect you that still chooses to dine with Lady Folly at times. On the one hand, you can rest. On the other hand, you can fight, knowing that, that he died not only, again, to secure your forgiveness, but your obedience, that you might know true, lasting joy in God. If I could just re-evangelize all of us this morning, myself included, we're invited to come for the 10th time, the first time, the 1,000th time, the 10,000th time to the one who can satisfy our soul's every longing. To turn from the, the temptress and whichever of her uh, seven deadly alluring personas draw us in most and to say yes to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God, the one whose table is spread with everything we need to satisfy us and bring us true and lasting joy. That's what we're after as a church. We're gonna fight for joy. Christian hedonism at its finest.